new information on a horrific case of alleged abuse in Enid. Police say patients at the Greer Center were choked, beaten, and in some cases even waterboarded. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Listen Frontier. Uh, this is Dylan Goforth. I'm here with Kayla Branch, one of our reporters. I say I'm here. I'm in Tulsa. She's in Oklahoma City. We're on Zoom. Uh, we're not in the same room together, but she uh, published a story this week um, that was she'd worked on for a long time. Very good story. Uh, and I thought what we would do today is sort of go through the story, some of the key findings, um, you know, talk to Kayla about how she got involved in the story with some of the background, what's happened since we published the story. Um, it, it, you know, this it's the Greer Center. It, it's going to be an ongoing. There, there will be more developments in the future. Um, there'll be stuff that you'll want to know about if you're interested in the story. So we're just going to talk about it. Uh, Kayla, how's it going? Going pretty good. What about you, Dylan? I'm um, doing good. It's Friday when we're recording this. Um, so that's always nice. Uh, I actually thought yesterday. I was telling Cliff this morning. I thought yesterday was Wednesday. I didn't realize until last night that yesterday was Thursday. Which is always a nice bonus because then Friday's here one day earlier, essentially. So right. I'm doing really good. I, you know, I'm really happy for you, and it's really nice in Oklahoma City today. So just an extra bonus too. Yeah, the kids were putting on; they were grabbing coats and stuff, and I was like, guys, it's gonna be 70 degrees in Tulsa today. You need shorts. Um, so, okay, let's just get into this. Um, tell me a little bit about now. Obviously, the story. Um, there have been other things written about the Greer Center before even our story was published. So, tell me a little bit about some of the background. Um, of what's going on there and what, you know, what has been written so far and sort of what got you into what eventually led to be the story that we published this week. Yeah, so um, everything kind of blew up in the public sphere um, in mid-November. I think it was November um, 14th, 15th, that Enid police um, posted on their Facebook a press release saying that they had arrested um, two individuals and were looking for a third um, related to caretaker abuse at the Robert M. Greer Center there in Enid. And that really just exploded everything. Um, so there were a lot of you know, uh, news reports on the fact that this was happening, you know, nobody knew anything kind of publicly about all of this before that uh, initial Facebook post by Enid police. Uh, and since then, you know, there have been um, charges filed, more individuals have been arrested on what police have described as systemic abuse at the Greer Center. And that has looked, I mean, it's pretty horrendous, some of the descriptions um, of abuse. You know, what we wrote in our story, um, you know, the abuse included choking clients until they were unconscious and beating them until they regained consciousness, waterboarding, having, you know, one client abuse another client. Um, and that was just from, you know, police reports. Um, so it, it was really egregious and they're still learning more. Um, so that was kind of the baseline um, that, you know, that is what got my attention. This is a huge story that's breaking. And as we typically do at the frontier, you know, we're thinking, what is next? What's the second, third day story? What's the three week story? What's the six month story out of this? Like what, how can we dig deeper into what, you know, is going on? And I always am fascinated and, and deeply interested in, you know, how do we have these gaps where something like this could happen? Um, and I've been reporting on individuals with developmental disabilities for about a year now. 
and I'm working on another story kind of related to this. Um, so I knew about the Greer Center um, and its place in Oklahoma's service array. Uh, it's really the only facility in the state that serves this population of people that have a developmental disability, but also have a mental or behavioral health challenge. And it's really hard to find care. Um, again, it's the only place in the state that does services like this. So if you're not at Greer, um, you're you know, maybe at like an inpatient hospital psychiatric facility, which are very rare, those spots are limited, or you're out of state. Um, so, you know, these are people who need a really high level of care, who've probably, you know, spent years or months looking for a facility like Greer to accept them to get some kind of treatment. Um, you know, so these are, these are individuals, these are families who have put a lot of faith into a facility like this to help provide, you know, for, for their family member, for their loved one. Um, so that's where I came into it. And um, so, so once I, uh, you know, learned about this and and read everything I could, I got my hands on as many court documents as I possibly could. I made a lot of phone calls. Um, I talked with the Ena detective, um, who led this case, and he had a, a lot to say about what was going on. Um, obviously, I reached out to the Department of Human Services, which is one of the main oversight bodies for Greer. Um, I reached out to the company that manages Greer, um, Liberty of Oklahoma Corporation, which they've been very quiet on all of this, haven't really said much. Um, and then, you know, so just through that reporting process um, was how I was able to find, you know, some of the key details in how, um, you know, one of the employees that uh, reported this abuse um, was harassed by her former coworkers. Um, and then also how DHS handles reports of abuse and, and the investigations and kind of the lack of communication between state agencies and law enforcement that potentially, you know, let this abuse continue for you know much longer than it than it should have. Yeah, that was one of the things that I mean, I you know obviously people are very interested in in the ongoing story of of the Greer Center and what happened and what you know what the results of the investigations and criminal charges and stuff will be. And it just the first thing that I thought of you know when when you started working on your story and I started kind of going and reading some of the stuff that had been written al already was these situate like i i come from a family who um on my mom's side there are um there were kids who had developmental disabilities mm -hmm. uh, and it's so hard on families and it was i just remember seeing my aunt and uncle and just so hard you know figuring out with such limited resources you know what the what the best you know option is for everyone for for the for the kid for the family it's just so difficult and it's so in this case it's so hard like you mentioned to find somewhere that can take care of your family member. I mean, who you love and it, it is a, such a hard challenge, but it's, it's so difficult to find someone who can take care of, of your family member. And then to have that trust, there's one spot and have that trust betrayed. I think, right. I think people recognize outside of just the kind of, you know, eye catching the headlines over and the allegations of what happened and the arrests, just knowing that, you know, people's tr vulnerable people's trust was betrayed and that vulnerable people were, were hurt, you know, during this process, I think is really a lot of people are really interested in the story, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was just to to give people a little bit more insight into what the reporting is like. Um, and, you know, what the challenges are, what where where our reporting is going in the future, you know, as we're looking at this case, you know, uh, in the upcoming months. So tell me a little bit about um, some of the key findings. I mean, our story, the story that you wrote, uh, a big chunk of it was about the and it just was so i guess it shouldn't have been surprising once you see all the allegations and everything that happened there 
but um, the retaliation that the, the whistleblower faced, and um, that was something that really, as you were kind of updating us on what you were finding, that was something obviously caught our attention uh, mm-hmm. because it's just an added layer of just you know what is going on at this facility. I mean, it just you know you would think that in 2023 that we would all be aware <laughs> these behaviors are unacceptable, I and mean, yet it's happening in a very public way. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, the timeline is uh, set in the summer. So think like early summer. um, And my understanding of the situation is that there was a former, currently she's a former grant employee. She did not work there, um, you know, past late summer. Um, But at the time, you know, she had concerns of abuse of some of her clients and had reported those to um, a manager um, had maybe even reported those to DHS and then gets a, you know, a phone call from a police officer early one morning in, in early June. And, you know, this, this officer is asking her, you know, do you work at Greer? Is this you? Like I found flyers um, posted uh, around town, including at another um, facility, a local facility there in Enid that serves people with developmental disabilities, found flyers posted up um, that have your phone number, that have your photo, um, and that have messages on them suggesting that you are available for sexual encounters. Uh, and so, and it was of this this one woman, but also another one of her coworkers. Uh, and so, you know, she's driving around. She, she finds more locations like apartment complexes, a basketball court um, around Enid, where these flyers are have been posted up. Um, and then, w- uh, within a few weeks, she has filed four protective orders against coworkers at the Greer Center for hanging up these flyers. And kind of in her description that she writes to the court in these court documents says, you know, these specific uh, individuals have been interviewed by a detective um, and they have admitted to hanging these flyers um, and it was retaliation for me, you know, reporting abuse. Um, And yeah, that just was that was crazy um, to see that and to find that, you know, on the state's court network. Um, and it, But it goes along, like you said, it goes in line kind of with what we've seen um, police describe, which was a culture at the Greer Center that allowed for this abuse to continue and that covered it up. Um, and that, you know, this employee she, you know, was trying to do the best that she could, you know, to follow the avenues that were supposed to be available to her. You know, you see something, um, Greer Center staff are mandatory reporters. So if you see abuse, you are legally bound and obligated to report that. Um, and so she she did. She made a report um, in the best way she knew possible and faced, yeah, harassment and retaliation from, from coworkers there at the Greer Center. And again, that was in, you know, early summer. That was in early June. Um, and it wasn't until you know, she went to police and reported to Enid Police systemic abuse at the Greer Center that the Enid Police Department even started their own investigation. Um, and so really that that just kind of kicked off, you know, actually, you know, uh, bringing charges against these individuals that committed the uh, or, or allegedly um, committed the acts of abuse, um, which is separate from those names that were related to the harassment and the flyers. So it, it's it's a large group of people there at the Greer Center that are, you know, involved in this systemic abuse. 
And so some of the timeline that particularly caught my eye when reading your story was that what all the stuff you just talked about was happened in early summer, June, around yes. that time. Um, so in by by July, the police are involved. Um, they're aware of the retaliation. They're aware, you would imagine, of uh, the abuse allegations inside the inside the center. And yet it's not until what is that? Five months later, that admissions are halted, and the police and and another thing that you wrote about was police. They start their investigation, then they learn DHS is already looking into some of these allegations, and yet it's not until five months later that admissions are halted into a place that's waterboarding, allegedly waterboarding patients and choking them out and beating them into consciousness again. It, do you have any idea of why it took that long for that to stop? Yeah, so that's a great question, and is going to be the kind of key and the crux of continued reporting on this is figuring out, you know, why, why it took so long, what DHS knew, what other state agencies knew, um, and when, and, and yeah, what took so long. That's kind of my key reporting question. And so I'm going to throw some dates at you. Um, but yeah, so, so Enid police, according to court documents, according to the detective I spoke with, um, they first find out about systemic abuse at Greer in early June. They begin an investigation. Like you just said, the detective finds out DHS, um, their Office of Client Advocacy, has already been investigating some complaints at Greer, um, you know, reports of abuse, but they haven't been able to, um, you know, confirm anything. And in the detective wrote that that was because, you know, not only were some of these victims nonverbal um, or severely developmentally disabled and kind of um, unable to give a full picture of what had happened to them, but also staff at Greer were not cooperating. That was kind of this detective's understanding of what happened. Um, so months, months go by. Um, and again, this is the police um account timeline of what happened. So months go by and then it's late September that another instance of abuse is reported to police. Um, and in this instance, they have got um, a victim who is verbal, um, who is able to be you know, directly interviewed. And they also have a witness who says, yes, I heard this and that. I can tell you all these details. Um, and so they really are able to um, have kind of a key example of this abuse is happening. We've got a victim. We've got a witness. You know, we have the evidence we need to really be pushing forward um, and bringing charges and arresting individuals related to this abuse, um, which they do in mid-November. They are able to complete the interviews they need, get, you know, um, arrest warrants from a judge, go out and arrest these individuals. And that kind of is, is where their investigation stands now. They've arrested a few more people, still investigating, getting more information every day. And that's what police have said. That's kind of the legal um, paper trail on one side. And then you have what DHS has said to the media. So to me, at a press conference, um, DHS has said that they got reports of incidents of abuse at Greer as, as early as April that are, you know, kind of looking back now connected to the systemic abuse that was going on. Um, but investigators didn't have a hard time asking questions at Greer of staff or victims. They didn't have a hard time getting records, none of that. Um, and at the time, you know, they did not see an imminent safety threat to any any person at Greer, any victim, any client, any resident, and none of the incidents of abuse that they got reports about were um, seemingly connected. They all seemed isolated is how DHS has described it. And so they just kind of 
you know, go on. Um, and DHS says that it's not until late October that they hear about a whistleblower who has come to Enid police and has said, no, these events are connected. This abuse is systemic. There's like a ring of employees that are coordinating these attacks. They're horrific. Residents are in dire jeopardy. And, you know, DHS says then that it mobilized really quickly and um, it put new safety measures in place. And about two weeks later, it had halted new admissions to the facility. Um, that timeline, I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, I couldn't confirm, you know, the late October date um, that they said there was a, a report of abuse. I couldn't confirm that anywhere else. The Enid Police Department told me they didn't have a report come in in late October related to the Greer Center. Um, so that's kind of a mystery that I will be following up on. DHS told me, you know, when I asked at this press conference they had the day that we published our story, you know, well, were you aware? Did you see the June report that was months before the one you're talking about that very clearly states there was systemic abuse at Greer? Um, and they kind of said, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know the the dates off the top of my head. I am not sure that I saw that. Um, so I think that's, yeah, a real um, crux of you know, how is it that police knew and were investigating systemic reports of abuse months before DHS said it ever knew, especially when, um, you know, there was some communication between the ENA detective and uh, DHS investigators in in the summer when he found out that they had already investigated. So it's really unclear kind of what DHS was doing um, and why it took them so long to like mobilize. Do you know um, how many residents there are in that facility? Yeah, so so Greer is a 52-bed facility, and it has about 50 people there right now. Um, and it is intended to be a shorter-term treatment facility. Um, shorter-term is in, how, what does shorter-term mean? I mean, Weeks or, weeks or months. Okay. Um, the reality is people stay there for many years. Um, just, you know, that's just kind of how it, it's, it's started to happen. Um, and so it's consistently full. Um, you know, people get taken in and out of Greer. Um, you know, we've seen some reports. I've heard of some reports, even, you know, not just in the last couple of weeks, but over the, the last year or so of, of people who have left um, places like Greer because of abuse. That was, um, the word is unsubstantiated. It could not be substantiated that there was abuse that happened. But you've got, you know, an individual who's got cuts or burns or is like overly medicated and urinating on themselves. Um, that is something that you see people pulling um, their loved ones out of facilities like Greer in Oklahoma because of issues like that. So um, people are kind of in and out. Um, DHS says that about five individuals or their families have asked to have their um, their loved one removed from Greer. Um, DHS kind of said, we don't you know, know what their treatment's going to look like because again, we don't have anyone else that has a facility like this or provides since November that these people have been pulled out. Yeah. Yeah. Or have asked to be removed. Um, so the number might go down of, of individuals, but it's also, you know, um, totally plausible that as soon as these people leave, there's, you know, would be people that are interested in, in having a loved one placed there just because they need help. Um, and there's nowhere else to go, but it's so consistently full of about 50 people. Were they able to share with you how many admissions there were, or, or might be in a given year. I mean, I'm just curious how many people might have had a family member, you know, um, placed there between April and, and November when admission stopped. I mean, have they shared any of that information or data with you? 
No, none of that data yet, um, though I've got a lot of requests that I'm going to, you know, hopefully get from DHS really quickly, um, including, you know, length of stay at Greer, admission rates, um, staffing requirements. I've also, you know, heard of that as something um, that really does play a role in how facilities, not only in Oklahoma, but nationwide, kind of handle issues like this. Um, you know, I've I've been told that it's not necessarily uncommon for um, facility management to get, you know, a report of abuse or mistreatment of some kind. And instead of removing that employee from their work altogether, firing them, they will just move them to a different part of the facility. Um, and, and I, you know, asking why, and the answer is they have really uh, strict staffing requirements, and it's really challenging to hire people in these roles. And so there is an incentive for facilities to just kind of shuffle people around, um, which, you know, did that happen at Greer? We will find out. Um, but th that that is also something we're looking into as well. And so DHS has said that they that legally they are not necessarily obligated to keep to update law enforcement outside of an initial, hey, there's been a, a report of abuse. They're, they're, they're not obligated to keep them in in the loop, essentially, as that as whatever their own internal investigation might be is is going on. And is that what I mean, is that what happened in this case? I mean, do we know were there communications between the facility and law enforcement in though that whatever seven month period outside of the initial, hey, we're looking into this? Yeah, so so DHS confirmed to me, yes, they didn't tell me how many times this happened, but they said for each of the incidents of abuse that we got, we told Ina Police, we're investigating your jurisdiction, just like FYI. Um, and it wasn't until Ina Police uh, got a report of abuse in June from that employee who was mm -hmm. harassed um, that, again, their investigator figured out, okay, DHS has already kind of looked into this. And he reached out to DHS investigators and requested, um, you know, all of their findings, all of the evidence, you know, all the information that they had gathered, um, which, like you just said, DHS is not legally obligated to proactively notify law enforcement of anything after just telling them we've investigated. Um, but if a law enforcement agent reaches out to them and asks for, you know, information or updates, DHS is supposed to hand all that over. So um, this detective reached out to them in later summer, probably July or so, um, and asks for all of this documentation, all this evidence. Um, DHS told me that they did not provide that immediately. Um, for whatever reason, and that written documentation wasn't provided to this this detective initially, um, but that they are working together now, um, and they are you know cooperating as as much as they can. Um, so we'll find out more about what exactly that means. But yeah, there's no legal obligation. Um, and while they were communicating, DHS says that they didn't immediately hand over those documents when when requested. And DHS, they've also said that they their plan is not to shut down. The facility or even change the the management provider yeah they said this, right? they were asked like what does the future look like at Greer are you going to shut it down are you going to get rid of Liberty um, and they were just you know again kind of said Greer is the only facility we have for this population and they didn't explicitly say it but you know the, the implication is if we shut it down where do we put these people that have really high needs um, so, no, you know, we're not going to shut it down. And as far as Liberty, um, they highlighted, you know, well, Liberty is a contractor um, we've been working with 
at this particular facility for 23 years. Um, and so it seemed like there was maybe some hesitation to just throw them under the bus um, and get rid of them because of this, you, you know, situation that's going on. Um, so there, there was no indication that they are interested in shutting the facility down or getting rid of Liberty. Um, Liberty's contract, um, you know, uh, I believe it's annual. Um, so those, you know, conversations are probably going to come up again here in, you know, however many months um, next year when they renew that contract. Um, but Liberties is a huge, huge company. Um, they have multiple other multi-million dollar contracts with DHS to manage um, two other facilities for youth with developmental disabilities, um, to manage the waiting list, um, to get people off of the waiting list for developmental disability services, which has been a huge issue in Oklahoma. Um, so they are really just this massive, massive provider in the state. Yeah, lots of it may seem a simple process to, you know, to close the facility down, but there's a lot of red tape that would need to be unraveled, um, I imagine, to before oh, yeah. big changes were made. Um, and then, you know, real quick, there have been some developments. We post your story on Wednesday. Today's Friday. There have been some developments. There was DHS held a press conference on Wednesday, and then mm -hmm. yesterday a lawsuit was filed. And so I know you've looked through some of the lawsuit documents. Tell me a little bit about about what's in there, and then we'll kind of wrap up. Yeah, so um, the lawsuit, like you said, it was filed yesterday in uh, Oklahoma County District Court um, against Liberty of Oklahoma Corporation, so the management company, and then several of the um, administrators are also directly named. Uh, and it really pulls from what we saw in the police documentation, um, their account of, um, you know, the timeline and the allegations of abuse specifically. Um, the plaintiff in the case is a um, John and Jane Doe, um, which kind of sounds like a young man was at the facility and then a female um, guardian. You know, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's just a family member. Um is filing the lawsuit on that individual's behalf. Um, so yeah, it talks about, you know, kind of the same things we saw in the police documentation um, and about the, you know, ongoing mental, physical, emotional toll that that kind of living environment takes on an individual. So they're seeking damages, you know, for that. Um, and then it also points to, you know, um, a variety of different like nursing home codes, caretaker codes that were broken um, at this facility. It mentions um, the abuse that we, or not the abuse, the harassment um, that we reported in our story in, on Wednesday. So it mentions us in this lawsuit and kind of our findings of this whistleblower who um, was harassed by her coworkers. That's in there as well. Um, and my understanding is this is kind of the first lawsuit that has been filed specifically um, related to this abuse that was uncovered, um, you know, like three weeks ago. Um, it's possible that there will be more. Um, you know, there is a DHS investigation. There's a State Department of Health investigation. There's an investigation by the Oklahoma Disability Law Center. And the Greer Center says, you know, Liberty says we're investigating. So there's a lot more um, that's that's happening. Um, police have told me, you know, they're getting new information every single day. Um, they're trying to talk with families. Um, and it's very likely that we will see more arrests. Um, kind of related to this. So yeah, this is absolutely not not the end of what we're going to see, um, you know, happening um, with this situation. Yeah, well, like Kayla said, I mean, it's an ongoing story. There's one thing that is uh, a surety is anytime that there is agencies or facilities trying to be quiet about something on the front end, and then it blows up and there's a lot of public attention, stuff 
comes out for a very long time. So there should be some more uh, reporting uh, about this. Obviously, the lawsuit, like Kayla said, could be additional lawsuits. People could join that lawsuit. Um, if you have information or tips, anything you'd like to share, if you're listening to this and you have some information you want to share with us, reach out. Kayla's still uh, involved in the story. We'll still be reporting on this. And, uh, you know, that would be a big help. Um, Kayla, anything else that you want to share with people before I let you go? Um, I would just say, you know, this this is a story that um, is terrible. It's sad and awful. And a lot of times, um, you know, what I hear from people who are directly Im- impacted by stuff like this is that they feel like they're alone. Um, they feel like people don't really care. Um, nobody's listening to them. They can't find help. Their day-to-day lives are, are a real struggle. Um, and so I think that it's important, you know, that people... Um, keep caring until we get some answers. Um, you know, if you have somebody in your life that has a, a family member, a loved one that has a developmental disability, um, think of that person a little bit extra. Um, it can be challenging and there are not a lot of resources, you know, for families out there. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's definitely something I would keep in mind if you're, you know, paying attention to this, be thinking about the people in your community that could be struggling um, and, and how you might be able to offer support. All right, Kayla. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. Talk to you soon.